0: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
2: I I think he escaped, like so many prisoners, Uh, He just didn't want to be in jail anymore. I don't think he had much of a plan beyond that. He sounds like a hurt child in his recordings, and and I guess he was a hurt child.
0: Russell Mad Dog Cox is one of the most infamous criminals in Australia's recent history. His colourful nickname certainly helps, although, as you'll hear, it tends to be the subject of swift and stern correction by anyone who's ever known him. Cox has several real and deserved claims to fame, though. Chief among them is his success as an armed robber during the 70s and 80s, the period known as the Golden Age of Armed Robbery in Australia. Cox was meticulous and even-tempered, but he sometimes teamed up with a younger guy called Ray Denning, who was a very different kettle of fish. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out
1: how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next.
0: Mark Dappen is a journalist and author and his books are notable for their historical focus. His latest book is Public Enemies and on the cover it promises to tell the story of Russell Mad Dog Cox and Ray Denning and that golden age of armed robbery. But that's a lie because this book does so much more than that it's a deeply researched text that places these two men and the rise of armed robbery in australia in context this is vietnam war australia this is rampant unhindered child abuse in institutional settings australia this is blatant endemic police corruption australia And Mark Dappen tells the whole story of how the cultural forces of the day came together to create these people and this violent phenomenon. We started our conversation by talking about a subject both Emily and I have been passionately interested in for a long time, and that is the infamous boys' homes that so many of the offenders we've talked about on this show spent time in as children.
2: So, I've given a lot of thought to boys' homes since I I finished the book. And I actually went to Mount Penang, which is now in a national park, but you can still see the buildings. You can still see the retaining wall that the children built because they are children. Both Russell Cox and Ray Denning began their incarcerated lives in boys' homes. Both of them committed petty crimes came from broken families and were institutionalized. As a result, Russell Cox was institutionalized. I guess you should say first Russell Cox is not his real name. He was known as Russell Mad Dog Cox, but he was neither a Russell nor mad nor certainly not a dog nor a Cox. His name was Melville Peter Schnitzeling, and one of the reasons he was institutionalized was he was found to be an uncontrollable child. Now, an uncontrollable child back in the day did not mean a a child who was uncontrollable by his behaviour. It meant his parents were incapable of controlling him through some deficiency of their own. They might be alcoholics. They might be drug addicts. They might have wandered off as a result of alcoholism or, or drug addiction. They might be violent people. They might themselves be imprisoned, imprisoned. So to be an uncontrollable child wasn't a crime. It wasn't even a delinquency. But that's what children ended up being punished for. They were sent to these boys' homes that may well have been founded with the best of intentions. I'm sure I'm sure at least the majority of them were founded with the best of intentions, but end up being many of them ended up being sort of a form of punishment camp. Mount Penang, home for boys, where Ray Denning found himself. Was um, originally, it was modeled on a, a kind of naval system of penal servitude. I think the original of the home was actually a boat, um, dry dock somewhere. So the boys were organized into companies as if they were on a ship. And they perform. they were marched around all the time. It's really big in boys' homes to have boys marching around.
0: In Ray Denning's case, he was the second generation in his family. His dad went through the same The same home place in had
2: Denning had actually been in Mount Penang Boys' Home. I think it was called Crossford um, then, but yeah.
0: Yeah, and the way you describe it, because he was there during the war years, I mean, these boys were literally wearing rags and were sent to live in people's homes as. Slaves, essentially,
2: yeah, unpaid domestic servants. Yeah, including yeah. the homes of their own warders. So I mean, in in a way, they you can see how they become the property of these older men yeah. um, to dispose of as they wish.
0: And you can see the generational uh, trauma, I guess we call it these days.
2: I mean, it there seems little doubt that, you know, <laughs> crime can be passed down from um, generation to generation within a single family. Both Russell Cox and Ray Denning, their fathers, were petty criminals, not particularly adept pretty petty criminals.
0: Absolutely. A lot of issues were passed down, even attitudes, I guess, toward civility, toward uh, civilised society, to family unit. To all of those things. And before Ray arrived there, of course, he, he lived through the most unimaginable tragedy with his mother, his beloved mother, didn't he? Yeah, I
2: mean Jack Jack Lahat Denning was in jail for much most of the early years of Ray's life. His mother went off with another man, divorced Jack while they were in jail. Jack found out where they were and apparently threatened them, um, somehow. In response to which, Ray's mother doused herself in kerosene and set herself alight in the house they shared. And Ray's mother essentially burned to death in front of him when he was 10 years old. She ran around the house in flames, trying to put herself out, but actually setting fire to other fabrics in the house as she ran. And the doors to the house were locked. Her husband or her man attempted to lay her out, but she died in hospital later as a result of her burns. After that, Ray was sent to live with other members of the family. And after that, ended up in a home. It's just unbearable. Imagine if that's what you see when you close your eyes in a dormitory in a yeah. naval prison in
0: Gosford, you yeah? know? Russell Cox's experience, he ended up in what we've come to think of as literally the worst boys home of
2: that era since the um, queensland inquiry into sexual abuse sexual abuse in queensland institutions it's become clear that the l- largest i think by far number of complaints against any institution are boys Town boaters and it seems like a number of the brothers over the years were probably pedophiles not all of the brothers and not all of the years but certainly some of them on some occasions. Later, he went to Westbrook Farm Home for boys, which has been acknowledged for decades as a terrible place. Before Cox got there, was run by a sadistic lunatic, and although he had been removed without punishment from his position when he exposed at length in an inquiry, the people who worked under him were still working there while Cox was uh, an inmate.
0: So these two are shining examples of the system that produced some of the most violent men that we've ever encountered in Australia.
2: Certainly that's an argument that, if you want to call them organic intellectuals within the criminal world, uh, hold. They say that the most violent of men in Australian prisons of their generation were directly products of Tamworth, home for boys, of Mount Penang, home for boys, and of Westbrook. Westbrook, so many murderers came out of Westbrook. Now, yeah. whether, whether they were going to be murderers, whether they went to Westbrook or not, obviously nobody could say, but you no. could say that Westbrook Farm Home for Boys definitely did not put anybody off murder.
0: No, Did not no. turn
2: anybody towards society and a, gent- a genteel or gentle way of life.
0: No, a Tarana Boys Home in Melbourne has a similar reputation. Your book is called Public Enemies and its subtitle is Russell Mad Dog Cox, Ray Denning and the Golden Age of Armed Robbery. What is it about the 70s and the 80s in Australia that made it a golden age for armed robbery? Because speaking to retired detectives now, they talk about when they were younger coppers. Like now all the TV shows and movies and that are always about homicide. But when they were young coppers, it was the armed robbery squad that was the glamour squad. That's where all the cool guys were. That was the squad you wanted to be part of. What was it about armed robbery in those days?
2: Uh, there's a couple of things. One arm robbery suddenly in the 70s became more attractive to professional criminals than it had been before particularly bank robbery because there was an explosion in the number of banks um there you know you can't really rob a bank now because you can't find one no but back in those days suddenly there was banks all over suburban branches of banks there was no cctv a bank is very, very easy to case, especially if there's no CCTV, because loads and loads of people walk in, queue up, change $100 into tens or whatever. They don't like you doing that now, I noticed, but back in the day they they were far more customer-focused. So you could see exactly what you were in for if you were to walk into that building with a gun by walking in there with $10 to get it changed. And as I say, you, you would not be filmed. If they're on a main road, you can park outside, run in, Will point a gun at somebody, demand the money, and you will be out in thirty seconds. If you walk into a bank and point a gun at somebody, they're not looking at your face, thinking, "Oh, he's five foot ten with blue eyes and brown hair, visible scars." They're thinking, "That's a gun. That's got a bullet in it, and they're, they're going to keep their eyes on that until such time as you leave." Now, prior to that, um, professional criminals preferred safe breaking. The um, rise of bank robbery saw the decline of safe-breaking as a, as a trade or, or as a profession, I guess, among professional criminals. People, a couple of coppers began shooting at safe-breakers, and if, if they're going to shoot you for doing that, you, you might as well do an arm rob, which also involves you know, no technical skill, no contacts, any junkie could do it. All yeah. you need is a weapon or a toy weapon. And so, gradually, throughout the 1970s, armed robbery rates just rose and rose. When certain targets hardened, they moved to softer targets. So, once banks started putting in cameras, they moved to servos. After servos, they might move to Seven-Elevens. There was always a parallel business in robbing security vans, which, you know, was the – payo- the payoff was huge on payroll days, but there but were armed guards protecting that payroll. And it's also worth remembering that bank tellers were armed through, through some of this period. Really? Yeah, bank, bank tellers um, were given pistols and wow. they, they used to train in shooting ranges um, on the roofs of certain banks. But you find me a story where a bank teller ever used their gun. <laughs> like what, what actually happened was the, the armed robbers nicked them. They come in and they said, ah, oh, I want all that money and your gun. So they'd leave <laughs> with that because what kind of a lunatic... Would pull a gun on a bank robber to save the takings of a bank, it even assuming it did so, you know?
0: There was a publicity war, too, I guess, going on, wasn't there? Because while we were terrified of bank robbers because they gave us the impression that they were crazy and they might do anything, also the banks waged a publicity war because we started hearing about, you know, how the desk could fly up at any minute and cut your head off and all of these sorts of things. I remember as a kid, you be so scared you wouldn't put your fingers on the desk because you were so scared it might fly up. Suddenly they started putting out a lot of info about the new technology they had in banks that would keep them safe and all of that.
2: Yeah, well, that that was the end of it all. Once rising security screens came in, in 1991, a couple of blokes um, ran into a bank in Sydney, one of them with a tomahawk. One of the guys tried to leap the counter, telepress the bone, security screen came up caught the guy under the chin. He had his head lodged between the top of the security screen and the roof of the bank for 15 minutes until the guy died. That really happened? Yeah, yeah. When I'm doing the book, I was talking a lot to criminologists. I didn't quote them, but I used it a lot as deep background. You know, I talk about the golden age of armed robbery. It sounds like it's something that people should be nostalgic for. I didn't mean that at all. I simply meant that it was a time when armed robbery flourished as a social phenomenon. And both of these criminologists that I spoke to at the Australian Institute of Criminology and the Queensland Academic pinpointed the time when that golden age ended as the moment when that screen came up and killed the bank robber. Well, at that point, the calculation changes. You run in there, you run out, you might get caught. Changes to run in there, you might get killed. I mean, what what you've got really though is two sort of parallel set of phenomena. You, you've got professional criminals doing a very small percentage of armed robberies, you now 10% at best. Right. And you've got um, heroin flooding the streets, causing the formation of a sort of ragtag, um, unorganized junkie army who are robbing uh-huh. whatever they can, too, you know, sometimes at shringe point.
0: So, how do Russell Cox and Ray Denning fit into this golden era? After they, I guess, graduated from the boys' homes, when did they become? Armed
2: robbers. Well, there's a clear career path. You, you commit petty crimes. You get classified uncontrollable. You get sent to a boys' home. You get well. You get the <laughs> shit kicked out of you in boys' homes. In between getting the shit kicked out of you by bigger boys and even bigger guards, you learn how to do breaking enters. Uh, once you, you do your breaking enters, you get caught for that, and you get sent to adult prison. In the adult prison, you learn how to do armed robs. I, I think you link in with a network you meet boys from all over your state who are like-minded and have had similar or uh, have similar experiences and ambitions and you tend to see them throughout your criminal career so if you did time in Mount Penang say And you never saw that guy again until a guy who was in your company or dormitory or whatever, until you get to Parramatta. He's still the only guy that you will know in Parramatta where you are jailed as an adult. So you gravitate towards him. Ray Denning said that so many of the guys from Mount Penang he met later in jail, they're a a natural kind of fit for each other, a natural, I mean, gang is too strong a word, but a natural social group to move into. And so, yeah, they do um, form networks in that way and networks that exchange contacts and exchange knowledge exchange skills.
0: That makes sense, yeah. And then when you get out of jail and you need money and maybe... Yeah, you bump into someone
2: from Mount Penang and you do a job, yeah. That is what happened time and time again. The Crims tell you the same story.
0: When did they meet each other?
2: In Katingal. So they'd both been branded as intractable prisoners, because they'd both tried to escape. Ray Denning had tried to escape Parramatta Jail in a hopeless bid that saw a warder smashed over the head with a hammer left of his own blood and four years after the attack died. And Russell Cox and a crew at Long Bay... Armed up with replica and uh, I think one real weapon, hijacked a truck, taking the prison officer hostage. They've been rammed by two trucks driven by prison officers. They were um, encircled and shot, shot at, and in Russell's case, in Russell Cox's case, actually shot by prison officers. So you're if you try and escape, it's not really a done thing in jail. It's against the whole vibe of the thing escaping. They, they don't like it at all.
0: They don't like it. And these days it hardly ever happens, but back in those days it seems like it was kind of your job to try.
2: Well, certainly if you're a professional criminal. I don't, yes. I don't think normal crims get bothered with it, and it, especially for a really long sentence. Yeah. I think people just did it for the sake of it sometimes. There's nothing to do. I mean, yeah. They just escaped. Most escaped criminals just went to their mum's house <laughs> and, you know, the police were either there when they got there or there when, you know, the it took to look their mum up in the phone book, which is why Russell Cox and Ray Denning were such phenomenal individuals, really. Each of them, through different means, managed to stay on the outside free and indeed committing crimes for periods far, far longer than the average S could be.
0: That's interesting because I was just going to ask you what makes you write about the two of them together because on the surface they're just they're such different guys. Ray Denning is a very disturbed young man with obvious reasons to be a disturbed young man. He's spent his childhood in a really dysfunctional family situation. He's seen his mother self-emulate in front of him at the age of 10 and then after that he's been ping-ponged around family members who don't take very good care of him and then he goes to Gosford boys home. And, and it seems like after that he's pretty emotionally disturbed, right? He was certainly
2: not particularly receptive to authority.
0: But but he's also he's a loose goose. And uh, compared to, if I may put it in such you I've know never heard that clinical, uh, it's a clinical term. All right, loose goose. And um, Russell Mad Dog Cox is it Latin? Yes. I so. Yes. yes. <laughs> Google it later. But Russell Mad Dog Cox is a very sharp, focused character. They seem very very different men.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think out of respect for Russell, who is no doubt listened to your podcast, um, yeah. we should call him Cox the Fox because that's what he liked. It's far more appropriate. Even the okay. guy who dubbed him Mad Dog Cox now regrets that. He accepts yeah. <laughs> that he's neither mad nor, nor a dog.
0: People say that all the time. Every criminal I've ever spoken to, every copper, every journo, everyone says it speaks very admiringly of him, actually, and says that it's a very inappropriate nickname, that he's neither mad nor a dog. That term is used every time by anyone who's ever met him or known him.
2: Yeah, but I didn't, I, I mean, initially I wasn't going to write about both of them. He wasn't, I wasn't really even going to write a crime book per se. I've just, i just written two books about a Vietnam War, essentially what was never ever called the home front in the Vietnam War back then. Uh, my last book. And I was intending to write a book, way back, I was intending to write a book about draft resistors. And I started to, when Ray Denning escaped from Grafton in 1980, he was hidden by a network of, safe housed by a network of left-wing activists, essentially prisoners' rights activists, who moved him from home to home. And I wondered whether that sort of underground was not an outgrowth of the same underground that had protected draft resistors. So, you said uh, at the beginning, uh, that it's still my favourite bit of this interview when you yes. were saying how good my book was. I, it was really very, very perceptive of you.
0: And that is exactly what I'm talking about. It's the historical context that you give the armed robbery period in Australia. That is what makes this book fantastic. And did you find that link?
2: There were more, there were more parallels than I'd expected. And perhaps less concrete links. So, yes, what I found was that the anti Vietnam War movement, I had thought for some reason they morphed into the prisoners' rights movement, that that explosion of activism um, that came out of the street marches against Vietnam. I knew it went in, I knew a lot of it went to that political energy went to sort of first-wave feminism. I knew a lot of that political energy went into the gay rights movement. And by energy, I mean um, both learned ways of protest and sort of hardened um, protesting personnel, if you want to put it that way. And I knew that some portion of that went into the prisoners' rights movement. What I didn't know for some reason Was he went via the anti-apartheid movement? So there was a much clearer shift, and all the activists that I spoke to stressed this: that he went from Vietnam to apartheid to prisoners' rights. The first people who actually safe house Ray Denny when he escaped were was a grande—a word I've never heard said, so I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it—grande, grande, 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 whoever of the anti-apartheid movement. So yeah, certain left-wing activists, certain anti-Vietnam War activists, I can think of at least two, um, and I can't say their names, were involved in the safe housing of Ray Denning. But more important, I think, was their methodology. So when you're a draft resistor, right, you weren't, there's this idea, I think, a popular idea that they were fleeing military service. They weren't fleeing military service, they were protesting against being compelled to serve, to fight in an army that was fighting in Vietnam. So there's no point in them disappearing. It doesn't doesn't do anybody any good. It's an individual act. What they had to do was refuse to obey the law, force the law to come after them, and then pop up all over the place going, okay, you've created this unjust law, and now you can't even enforce it. I'm refusing to go into the army, and you can't make me. If you can't make me, you can't make anybody else do it either. And I've got this network of supporters that will ensure that you do not catch me. So you've got, um, for a couple of years, the most militant years of the draft resistance movement, you've got draft resistance going underground and popping up at the university, uh, in university campuses, police chasing them, students getting them away. Ray Denny did a very similar thing. He was a campaigner against verbals, that is the use of fabricated confessions by police in court. He was a campaigner against the bashings that were occurring in jails for intractable prisoners like himself and Russell Cox. And to keep those campaigns in the public eye, there was no point in Ray Denning just disappearing into a student house. You know, he had to keep popping up. So he did. He popped up and his stunts were they, they escalated in drama. He left handprints on the doors of the Criminal Investigation Bureau.
0: Yeah, you've got a photo in your book of uh, a very cross-looking detective, Constable Ian Waterson of the Fingerprint Bureau, frowned at the handprints there. Well...
2: I (laughs) captioned that one.
0: I just read the rest of it. While wearing a jumper, I just noticed. You
2: see, for me, the point of that picture was the jumper, but but it was much bigger. The one they said the jumper was really showing off to its best. But in the little picture, it just looks like I'm insane saying he's wearing a jumper. No, I suppose
0: he knew he was going to get in the paper, so he put his best Best jumper jumper on. on. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, just audio. what was I saying oh yeah
2: so he puts his handprints on the window of the CIB for blokes in jumpers to have a look at he signs the guest book of a police launch yeah. in Norm Allen he reviews yeah. a movie for Triple J he actually records a new call sign for Triple J and I guess the peak of his um, terrorist style campaigning he took a shot at the gun tower at Parramatta Jail actually took a shot in fired on the Jail and if you look at abused children They may well end up violent, psychotic, sociopathic, but that violence is very rarely directed against anybody that's violent towards them or even any institution that's been violent towards them. It's directed at innocent people. They become predators. They do not fight back. They do not shoot men armed with guns in institutions that once controlled them. So, you know, in a way, that was quite incredible. I'm not endorsing it. In any way, yeah. it's not the normal, not the normal behaviour of an escaped prisoner.
0: How much of it do you think was his idea? How much of his movie reviews and his and his stunts and it's, it all sounds very creative and clever. But how much of it was his idea? How much of it was the Grandes' idea? And
2: well, not the actual Grande, if, if that's how you say
0: it. I don't know either. But but other people's ideas. Was he a puppet for an organisation for a group?
2: I don't think he was. Uh... A puppet. I think that's putting it too far. I, that's going too far. Um, but I don't think much of it was his idea. I I think he escaped, like so many prisoners, uh, he just didn't want to be in jail anymore. I don't think he had much of a plan beyond that. I think other more sophisticated, more politically sophisticated ex-prisoners were able to provide him with a plan Today yeah. they certainly helped him logistically with some of those stunts and possibly some of the things that Ray Denning is alleged to have done in that period may even have been done by other people within the prisoners' rights movement.
0: Yeah, because he's very young, he's very youthful looking and handsome, which is always a great marketing tool to have at your disposal. I think a lot of escaped prisoners don't have the look yeah, I mean,
2: somebody said to me uh, yesterday. Uh, he look, you know, looking at the cover of a book. He looks like a sulky pop star, and yes. um, Russell Cox looks like Clint Eastwood. So yeah, yes. they, they both um, they both had that kind of um, good, the good looks and charisma that you would hope for in a movie outlaw.
0: Yeah, but Russell Cox looks menacing, though. I mean, if... if... Some people like menacing. It's a... Yeah, I don't mind it, to yeah, be honest. But true. if you're going to tell me that that's a criminal and a violent criminal, I'm going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, do. I get it. I don't really want to go and hang out and watch a movie with him so he can review it on Triple J. But Ray Denning, I go, no, I don't. I think he's misunderstood. I don't
2: mm-hmm. think he did it. I don't think everyone sure but... that, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. even somebody that he betrayed and who deeply disliked him conceded he had earthy charm Um, and he sounds like a hurt child in his recordings and and I
0: guess he was a hurt child. We're in stage four lockdown here in Melbourne which is preventing us from even going ahead with our planned live stream event at the moment but we have been hosting regular Netflix parties where we watch classic true crime series on Netflix with our listeners. Some of them are just for patrons, but sometimes the patrons get to choose the show and everyone else is invited to join in and we all chat while we watch. It's really nice. So if you'd like to be involved in those, the best way, of course, is to become a patron, which you can do at patreon.com forward slash or at the very least, like us on Facebook so you can keep up with what we're doing. Thank you to these patrons, Jessica Locanini, Sandra Shaw, Rachel Thomas, Sasha Murphy... Keely McPherson and Josie Turner.
1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Our
0: guest today is journalist and author Mark Dappen, whose excellent book, Public Enemies, is out now. We have some photos from the book on our Facebook page. As I mentioned earlier, it's more than a book about Russell Cox and Ray Denning and there are many familiar names mentioned because the underworld is a small world. One person who claimed to have been close to Russell Cox in prison was none other than Mark Chopper Reed, who even went so far as to write a poem for his dear friend which was included in one of his 15 books. Now, Uncle Chop Chop was known to tell a few porkies of course so our guest took some time to look into that supposed friendship.
2: I I would think it unlikely that Chopper Reed was great friends with Russell Cox. Um, Chopper Reed was a tool of establishment. Um, Mm. Chopper Reed was used by the governor to basically suppress other prisoners. Um, Russell Cox was no friend of prison establishment, although he was certainly capable of... Keeping a sufficient straight face that they might think he keeping a straight face sufficiently that they might think he was. I mean, Chopper Reed was a police informer. I don't think Russell Cox had much time for police informers.
0: I've been researching Rodney Collins. He was a terrifying criminal in Melbourne. They worked together on some jobs and possibly worked together on the uh, Brian Kane matter, as old coppers call these things matters. What can you tell us about that matter? Uh, you know, Co- as you
2: say, the police um, like Cox and Collins for that shooting and possibly Santa Mercuri, I believe.
0: We haven't mentioned Cox's violent side yet. Yeah, well, it's difficult. I mean,
2: a- as you know, the police like Cox for three killings, disappearances. I mean, Laurie Brendergast's body hasn't been found. Kane and Ian Ravel Carroll, it seems very likely that Russell Cox did shoot in Revel Carroll, but a judge found that it was impossible to tell whether Cox or Carroll um acted in self defense I mean yeah, maybe he shot Brian Kane, I don't know maybe he shot low Prendergast, I don't know, but he wasn't a standover man he wasn't a thug he wasn't um, um a, a swaggering bully. he probably did shoot in Revel Carroll, but even members of um, Carol's family suggest that Ian Revel Carroll might have started that.
0: He was a potentially a, you know, if needs must sort of guy, maybe. Maybe.
2: I think probably.
0: I have been reading a lot of your columns as well in the last couple of so days. you're spending
2: your time very well.
0: Yes. And I learned disturbingly that a hobby of yours is visiting prisons as you travel, oftentimes on your partner's birthday. So you have stood and admired the very bars that were sawn by Russell Cox.
2: Those very bars, yes.
0: Explain that. They're in the
2: Correctional Services Museum in Cooma um, and there's even a stuffed dummy of Russell Cox, although to be fair, it could could be almost anybody, um, pushing his way through those actual bars. Katingle no longer stands, but the bars but I was there in the um, Museum of Corrective Services. It's actually the sort of prime exhibit there in Cooma. And a prisoner shows you around. I, l- I love the ones where prisoners show you around.
0: So tell us about the escape.
2: Well, he's, he's in Long Bay initially for a series of armed robberies with two men connected with Victoria, Painters and Dockers, Greg Workman, who, you know, became famous for eventually being <laughs> killed by Alphonse Gangitano and a guy called Peter Croft, um, who I believe is also dead. They're in there for armed robes. They get, workmen and Crofts get transferred to Parramatta, leaving um, cops in Long Bay. They break out of Long Bay. They attempt to break out of Long Bay in the truck, thing I talked about earlier. The reason they're in Catingle is because of the truck breakout, the failed breakout of Long Bay.
0: Catingle is supposed to be unbreakoutable,
2: right? What happened with it, previously there was quite a savage regime in jail rings for intractables. You had, particularly in Grafton, it became clear that it was essentially, you know, more or less policy that prisoners would suffer the reception biff. That is, they would, when they first entered the jail for offences committed in other jails, offences essentially against the jail administration, like in the guard or trying to escape or whatever, they would be stripped and they would be beaten by a group of prison officers with batons, with fists and with feet. Um, They would be beaten the day they came in and they would be beaten subsequently day after day for infringing regulations that they were never told the details of. So they didn't know they had to do their top button-up until they were beaten up and told that it was because they hadn't done their top button-up, et cetera. So there's a system of calculated and sanctioned brutality that was eventually kind of superseded by Catingle in uh, New South Wales and, uh, to an extent, Jaka Jaka in Victoria. There wasn't supposed to be bashings in Catingle, and certainly at first there weren't any. The idea was to keep prisoners as separate as possible from one another and as separate as possible from prison officers. it also kept them as separate as possible from natural light and natural air. There was all the air in Catingal was air-conditioned. All the light was electric. There were no windows in the cells. Prisoners were incarcerated behind a series of interlocking doors. The wings were very small. Their only source of natural light was an exercise yard. Exercise yard sounds like be a big place, but it was really the size of sort of three suburban garages put together. When the light came in through the roof, and the roof was barred. Now, the only way that the light came in was the only way a prisoner could escape. Russell Cox saw this, and legend has always been that there was a blind spot, and this is not a legend, there was certainly a blind spot that could not be seen by the guard at the control panel when he turned to electronically open and close the doors. So a cyclone wire up one of the walls, and cops would climb the cyclone wire, jump up, hang on to a bar with one arm, and pull himself up while using the other arm. In the other hand, he's got a hacksaw blade smuggled into the jail, and he's doing a pull-up, he's sawing away at the blade. Guard turns round, he jumps down. So gradually, gradually, gradually he works a little bit more of the bar away until such time as he can push it aside. But what I've been told is, in fact, other prisoners helped. And a lot of the time he wasn't doing pull-ups, he was standing on someone's shoulders. And it was supposed to be an escape for not just Russell Cox, but many of the other people in Katingle. On a night that the bar was sufficiently weakened, a lot of the other prisoners, who included Ray Denning, who was in Katingle, for his own escape attempt, they were in, held overnight in Maitland after a court visit. So Cox broke out on his own. He broke out of an unbreakable prison. He definitely, in this stage, no, he didn't jump on anyone's shoulders. He pulled himself up pulled himself through the bars. He's on the roof of Katinka, which is seven meters above the ground. He gets to the edge of the roof. He jumps. He lands on a ledge that's three meters below. Three meters below the roof. Jumps again. Four meters. Starts running. Prisoner officer in the tower shoots at him. He scales a five-meter fence. Starts zigzagging to avoid being shot. Runs across to another five meter fence, scales the next five meter fence, comes down, comes over the two and a half meter wall. He's out in Malabar in Sydney, tries to flag down a taxi. Taxi driver, not particularly interesting. Not the fair he's looking for on that evening, but Cox then disappears in the night and is not apprehended for another almost 11 years. He, uh, in, that was happening in 1977. In 1978, Russell Cox and another very imaginative and courageous uh, an unusual character, a professional criminal B&E man uh, by the name of Steve Sellers, uh, broke, tried to break back into the unbreakable jail. They got as far as the roof and they got back into the complex with a stash of guns and ammunition and uh, metal cutting equipment. They actually managed to cut the bars again one of them is said to have descended into the yard again, but they were spied by um, an elderly lady who got up to the bathroom and used the bathroom in the middle of the night in a nearby housing commission house who rung into jail and said, "It's the bloke on the roof of the jail. Is this, is this normal? And so they ran off. Good
0: God. So they escaped again, really? I mean, they were back in and they escaped again? Yep, they did. Oh, that's incredible. Poor Ray Denning was not home on the night that the bars actually broke. He was in Maitland. So when did he get out?
2: Well, not until, what uh, I said earlier, um, Grafton in 1980. So Katinga right, yes. was, was closed down. Um, Denning was transferred to other jails, eventually Grafton. In Grafton, he escapes um, in a garbage trolley uh, bound for the incinerator. He gets out before the incineration and runs off into the bush.
0: But then after that, you wrote such a just a brilliant line and I'm beginning to learn that this is definitely your style where you inject a lot of humour into the way you communicate because you wrote that Ray managed to do what the entire Australian police force was unable to do, which was find Russell Cox.
2: Yes, he found <laughs> Russell Cox. Then in the early 11 years, the cops hadn't been able to do it and he found him in less than a week. Yeah, you know, <laughs>
0: I mean, I'd never thought of it that way before, but that is quite astounding.
2: Yeah, well, it's—I mean, to be honest, it's not my joke. It's the crims' joke. The crims—they all the crims say that. But I, I have to say, we've mixed mixed up our escapes.
0: Oh God, have we? Yeah. Tell me what happens. Tell me. Tell me. Tell um, it. Well, he did
2: find Russell Cox that time as well, but the escapes in eighty, and found Russell Cox in eighty, which time Cox had only been out for three years. Yeah. Um, but then with well, the time he found him, it was more spectacular. It was the second time, De- or second time Denning successfully escaped in 88. Then, he found, then Cox had been away for 11 years and Denning found him.
0: How did we end up with these two fellows? Ray Denning, there is a photo. This is not a spoiler because probably a lot of people know this already, but there's a photograph here of Jack the Hat Denning, who was Ray Denning's dad, standing at his son Ray's grave. How did, how did that happen?
2: Ray uh, died, Ray turned on all of the people that he once knew after he was recaptured after the 1988 escape. He did a deal. He tried to do, I think, far more ambitious deals. With the police? with, With the police and with prison authorities to secure a few. But, I mean, he had a history of clandestine deals with the police and prison authorities, I think. But in 1988, he made a series of statements implicating everybody that had helped him on the first and second escapes and a massive number of other people in various real and imagined criminal enterprises, most famously Tim Anderson, who he said had confessed to him three times that he had bombed the Hilton, even though in every possible public forum, Tim Anderson had denied bombing the Hilton. In Ray's story, he walks up to him in the yard and goes, hey, mate, I bombed the Hilton and catch you later sort of thing. And that got Tim Anderson seven months inside. And then uh, eventually his plans to get various rewards all all fell over, but he did eventually get out of jail, uh, promised the witness protection program. The witness protection program was removed from him or he was removed from the program. He was forced to live in the open, essentially in Sydney, under his own identity, having betrayed the entire New South Wales underworld. Um, and he died of a heroin overdose. Now, do the entire New South Wales underworld believe that that was a hot shot. I don't know if it was or not. Um, yeah, I just don't know. You know, some crims say the cops did it. Or all the cops say the crims did it. Um, maybe he did it to himself. And...
0: We won't go into the recapture of Russell Cox and Ray Jenning. It's one of the bits, one of the great bits that we'll leave for everyone to buy the book. What about Russell Mad Dog Cox? Whatever became of the Mad Dog? Or, no, F- Foxy Cox.
2: <laughs> he became a model prisoner and he actually had the name Mad Dog removed from his prison record. Apparently he can do that. Who knew? Because it wasn't a real alias.
0: Because I think, is it true that a journalist actually made it up?
2: I think I might imply that in the book, but I think the journalist was actually quoting a cop who was looking for him. He said something like, I you know, i he could be a mad dog when cornered, or something like that. Oh, okay. But it's very really, whenever um, someone escapes jail, police say he's a violent animal who could kill and stay clear, essentially yeah. to cover themselves if they have to shoot him. No. Um, Good
0: to know.
2: <coughs> Yeah, if you, hear, if you escape jail and you hear the police are saying you're violent not to be approached, you know, I'd, I'd give yourself up, really.
0: Or make sure you christen yourself Pussycat or something like that just to get <laughs> ahead of it.
2: Russell the Quiet Pussycat Cox.
0: <laughs> yeah. So he, he became a model prisoner. Model prisoner, prisoner he- um, counselled
2: other younger prisoners against the life of crime and eventually got out of jail aboard that assessed him for parole included a guy called Steve Tandy, who was one of the prison officers that he'd held hostage in the Long Bay Escape, and Tandy supported his release. Tandy said he was a reformed guy. Everybody believes, everybody agrees he was a reformed guy. He got out and lives anonymously up in Queensland, as far as I know.
0: Still alive. Yeah,
2: he's still alive.
0: I'm assuming you haven't heard from him. Did you speak to anyone who's spoken to him lately or keeps up with him? Yeah, I can't say. Mm. How intriguing. Fascinating cat, as are you, sir, it has to be said.
2: I know about cat. I don't think about I think I'll be a mad dog.
0: Well, it's you can have it. He doesn't want it anymore. <laughs>
2: Mark mad dog napping.
0: Yeah, but you know what that means, don't you? It means if the cops have to shoot you. Yeah. Yeah, they're covered.
2: They're doing us all a favour. Society, the literary world, podcasters. Yes,
0: yes. Thank you, that is awesome. Thank Thanks. you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. And thank you to these patrons, Maxine Crook, Bridget Romali, Michelle Fitzgerald, Nicole McKenzie, Claire Francis and Vanessa Gilroy. Thanks to them. We'll be back next week.